millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Paul Scott, Rudyard Kipling, William Makepeace Thackeray. Three British writers who each have a seminal text that would be ripe for the juicing by those of us here at Fuckboys of Literature. They also have in common the fact that they were colonizers in India and are well known for texts that are set in the far-flung reaches of the great British Empire. They can go take a leap. Greetings, Attic Wives, and welcome to Fuckboys of Literature. I'm your host, Emily Edwards. We've so far only tackled fuckboys whose stomping grounds are the Western canon, and rightfully so. Britain, France, America, we'll get to the Germans and more Russians too. And the works of the colonizers are rife with fuckboys, as is the nature of colonization. But what about texts written by someone of a colonized people? Does the fuckboyery, like, rub off? All right, everyone, I have an amazing show for you today. With me today is this wonderful booktuber that we that many of you know about. Her name, her channel is Amrita by the Book. And with me today, we have Amrita. How the hell are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show, Emily. Thank you so much for coming. I should tell everyone that... Um, I am in Los Angeles and you are not. You are yeah. in India. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. That's where I've been spending the pandemic. Oh, goodness. How's that going for you? Oh, you know, uh, every day is a day. So <laughs> every day is a new, incredibly boring and lackluster adventure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have all gotten very well acquainted across the globe with our own four walls of where we live. Oh my god, it's not even my four walls. It's literally my bed. Like I have a sleeping position, a recording position, a working position. Uh, my world is basically my bed. Yes, it's so depressing. And um, <laughs> hopefully this has been bringing people joy. Um, because, you know, we read a book that I was completely unfamiliar with for this episode. And um Will you tell me a little bit of your history with this book, which is called The Guide? Right. So The Guide is written by R.K. Narayanan, who is one of the great names in Indian literature uh, in the 20th century. And I had never read this book before, but I was very familiar with the material because it had been um, adapted to screen in the 1960s. And it was like this big, glitzy Bollywood um, production and I think they also wanted to make it like a Hollywood production so there was an English version and a Hindi version and they actually premiered the English version in America and everything and it was a huge deal um, I don't think the English version worked very well I think it was just seen as a curiosity and it was the 60s and people were just like what is this which is strange because um, the book is written in English 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, the history of English writing in India, um, it has its ups and downs. And sometimes the English can be like modern Indians find it a bit of a struggle sometimes, in my opinion, to engage with the older works because they're written in this very colonial British English. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, but th- that wouldn't have been a problem as much in the 60s, I feel. But um, it's also, you know, like Narayanan had a very specific literary following. And back in the day, like that was a hit or miss as, you know, um, when you talked about popularity. Right. And um, I don't know, like, I know that he had a lot of success in America. Like, they talk about how his readership stretched from New York to Moscow, which is a very Indian way of talking <laughs> I was about like, There's not that much in between New York and <laughs> Moscow, the way I look at a map. But <laughs> they're going the other direction. I don't know. It's lovely. It's, um, it's a very, like, uh, mid-20th century Cold War Indian way of looking Isn't at it. it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little something for the capitalists, a little something for the communists. And in the middle, we have Akinar Island. Oh my goodness. Um, so he is, uh, so for me, like, you know, I was telling you before that I have a complicated relationship with him and his work. And part of that complication comes from the fact that he was for many years, you know, he and this other writer called Mulk Raj Anand and maybe a couple of other people were uh, really the giants of Indian writing in English. And there mm-hmm. were sufficiently few of them that, uh, the they, you know they became sort of the voice of uh, Indian writing in English for many many years, and what that meant was that we had to read their work in school, and so for me, Akinarainen is homework exactly. <laughs> Oh, yeah, especially with the the added layer of like the colonial lens that's put on top of it of just like, because this is popular in Britain, I have to read this in school. That just must, that's so depressing of like, that's why you have to teach children this text. That's such a bad way to approach it. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, uh, I think he started publishing in the 1930s, I believe. And mm-hmm. um, he definitely, you know, um, he was under the mentorship of very successful um, English novelists, such as Graham Greene, for example, who was his great mm-hmm. friend and mentor. But uh, I think by the 50s and 60s, and later on, you know, he was nominated to the upper house of Indian Parliament and so on. And so he just became like a part of the establishment. And so when they wanted to teach Indian children improving literature um, about, you know, Indian things, and because, right. you know, most of it was basically British classics that we grew up with. Right, um, that makes sense. But when we were talking about Indian writing, unless it was something from, you know, something translated from one of the other languages or translations of Indian epics and stuff for a long mm-hmm. time there were just a very few authors who were seen as good writers 
because that's a colonial thing, isn't it? Like, right. do you write good English? Exactly, exactly. And because I can connect with this story, which full disclosure, I loved this book. It was delightful. <laughs> but I, I, but like because the white colonists can, uh, you know, feel affinity for the characters and the story. It must mm-hmm. be good. It has hit the, like the thresholds of like good British literature, and therefore it must be good Indian literature. And it's like, yep. <sighs> No, but yes. Uh, there, there's something to be said for for universality, but yeah. So he did something that was, I think, these days. You know, they really lean into it, and I see a lot of young authors being told that specificity is universality. In that, you know, mm-hmm. you just really write what you know and you create this world that you know intimately and he kind of did that very naturally uh, when he created this fictional town of Malgudi which is where the guide is set mm-hmm. and that became like you know he's he's got like like a whole bunch of stories that are set in this fictional town and uh, it sort of became small town India or like South Indian small town India um, in the popular imagination, especially because it was um, adapted to this very successful TV series in the 80s. Yeah. Um, Oh my goodness. So I feel like a lot of your Indian friends and like audience members who write in and tell you that, you know, they love Arkinarainen. I don't know how many of them might have read uh, the Malgudi stories, or maybe they read it in school, but most of them, especially if they're my generation, uh, I won't mention which because let's just skip right over that. Um, <laughs> but if you were growing up in the 80s um, and maybe in the early 90s, I forget when it was airing, but around mm-hmm. that time, uh, you definitely watched it on TV. So, so- and it was beloved, like it was such a big hit. Um, the 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 correlatory that I can think of for American television and literature is everybody compares it in like texts and speaking about the book to uh, William Faulkner's uh, mm. Yakutatalpa County in Alabama. But in my brain, that I did not realize that this had been translated to television. To me, it sounds a little bit more like Little House on the Prairie, where there's this fictionalized yeah. world where all of these people are sort of coming together. And there is just a very set culture that perhaps does not exist elsewhere or does not actually exist anywhere, but it feels like it does. And it feels realistic. And it feels as though you know these people, even Mm -hmm. though the actual society and the way it works and the machinations of it don't actually or could not ever actually exist. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with that, you know, like as you were speaking, I was thinking of Anne of Green Gables, which is also Mm -hmm. kind of like that. Um, Yeah, so um, I think these days people don't really talk about Arkenarainen as such, or at least I haven't seen a lot of... um, uh, He hasn't had a renaissance yet. No, no, he hasn't. And that's mainly because in the Indian popular imagination right now, we are kind of obsessed with a very different North Indian 
idea of small town and it's all very tied to violence and caste politics and things that are very different from uh, the kind of things that Narayanan wrote about. No, Um, because there is very little violence in this novel of just maybe there are fist fights, but that's about as violent and, um, you know, horrible as the story gets, really. It's very genteel, isn't it? It is, which is why, you know, um, uh, Raju is the character? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Getting close with the pronunciation. Um, (laughs) You know, he's his... He's described in plot synopsis as this like scheming, you know, like uh, kind of dastardly guy, but really he just accidents himself (laughs) into a lot of his sort of, uh, you know, criminal air quotes sort of behaviors. He doesn't do anything. He just accidents himself into it. (laughs) That's a good description. Uh, I always think of Raju as an idiot, you know. Yeah, Um, he really is. (laughs) Um, he, uh, I had to really work while I was reading this book to sort of divorce myself from my impressions of the character and the story from the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it got easier the more I got into the book, I think. But yeah, that's a good description of what Raju does. He, um, he wants things and he finds himself in situations where he just, just by the process of going with the flow and agreeing to things, (laughs) he eventually finds himself in possession of most things that he wants and a few that he doesn't. Exactly. Um, It reminds me of a lot of our discussion of um, white privilege here in the States, where Mm -hmm. like the, the theory, you know, the, the, very true belief that all white men really have to do in American society is just kind of show up and say (laughs) yes and things will kind of work out and my husband who is just like the spitting image of white American male privilege he's just like no that's about right all you have to do is just kind of you know yes and yourself into like a pretty decent life and you know of wavering truthiness to that now but like but that is Raju's story sort of in a nutshell of just like his he's he starts off in an okay place where his father owns his own business in a way and then just sort of uh, yeah, just gets taken with the waves of time in order to uh, become a fairly successful businessman, go to jail, and then become a, a savior figure. It's it's <laughs> innocent, but also not at all in the least. It's interesting to me to hear you say that because I haven't thought about it, but I did think about him in terms of cost privilege because... Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that the few people that do talk about Narayanan in the present tense, and I think like when they do, uh, you know, they, they do have the renaissance, the Narayanan renaissance, so to speak. Uh, I think the cost aspect is what is going to really come out today because it's a new dawn and it's a different time. Right. Um, so Narayanan was himself an upper caste Brahmin man. And uh, just as you have white privilege in the United States, you have Brahmin privilege in India. And they're both mm-hmm. very um, uh, comparable, in my opinion. And I, I, From what I know of the caste system, it sounds pretty similar. Right. <laughs> um, so 
Um, yeah, so in the, in the novel, uh, when Raju's uncle comes to, um, uh, to visit and he's grilling Rosie and he's basically slut-shaming her and mm-hmm. um, calling her names and putting her down, one of the things that he says, you know, is that, are you of our caste? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just one line. And the genius of Narayanan in many ways is that he had a year for the things that people said and the way that they said it. Mm-hmm. And he didn't choose to really unpack things. Like he was not that kind of writer. Um, I think he, because there are different kinds of writers, right? Like there are yeah. writers who like to unpack things and examine them. And then there are writers who just like to paint a broad picture of what's happening. And I think that's who Narayanan is. And Raju definitely has that privilege. You know, he just, and he has the pride that comes with that kind of privilege where he won't lower Mm -hmm. himself to certain certain people or in certain situations. And that also plays a big role in his downfall. Yeah. You know, there, there's a certain point where you can tell, I, I, he doesn't say this specifically, but he um, sort of uh, suggests that because his father worked in a shop, he shouldn't mm-hmm. have to, because mm-hmm. you're always a little <laughs> bit better than your parents were before you. And that is just so um, clear to pretty much anybody who lives in a capitalist society of like, <laughs> you're supposed to be just a little bit better off, a little bit better than your parents before you. And, you know, we're seeing around the world that this is like now having quite the impact on just like cultural and heritage things where it's just like, mm-hmm. what are we going to do now that nobody of this generation feels like they should be working in a shop or have a restaurant or, you know, be dancers like Rosie in in the book. And it's just a really interesting generational thing that's been inflicted on all of us around the world of just like, oh, wait, we did actually value those things, just not enough to pay for it. <laughs> True. <laughs> it's it, This is such a really... Um, I don't want to use sort of uh, the the common colonialist language of just like this is a beautiful narrative about people (laughs) that I will never meet you know and it's just I I'm trying really hard not to lapse into that sort of like what all westerners do of just like oh the magical India like I'm trying really hard not to do that because I find my you know everybody finds themselves kind of slipping into that um it's the most relatable book from a non-European or American culture that I've read. And so much of that goes back to the fact of just how casually um, British and colonialist uh, uh, sort of imagery Mm. is slipped into the narrative. And it's just so seamless that um, Narayan, I'm sorry, I'm so botching all of this. It's fine. Um, Okay. Thank you, but it's not. I'm, I'm really trying. Um, he just sort of casually drops it into the story. I just want to say that as long as you're trying, it's fine. But, you know, the problems arise when you don't try. <laughs> That's kind of <laughs> Um Yes. So uh, that actually is something that I did notice this time around um, in that 
so I didn't know this about the Narayanans because um, I say Narayanans because his brother Arky Lakshman. Um, so it's not actually Narayanans. His name is Narayanan. His family name is right. Arky. But uh, his younger brother Lakshman is um, or was India's most famous cartoonist. And both of them have that same talent for um, just recognizing or clocking life's absurdities, like everyday absurdities. Mm -hmm. And Lakshman actually had a bit more of a scalpel quality to him in that, you know, he was looking at corruption, he was looking at poverty, he was looking at uh, class differences. Um, whereas Narayanan was basically a bit more um, uh, wholesome, I would say, like you know, he because he had everything was set within the uh, within the uh, the field of this one little village, and he was mm-hmm. trying to explore broader themes rather than everyday things. Um, but that's a really good word to use for this because you know so many of the books that we read for the show is filled with violence and and sexual assault and people really trying to do mm-hmm. deeply horrible things to one another and that's just not part of this particular story yeah. it does have a wholesome quality to it right um I, if you like this book i would actually um recommend malgadi days which is his um other book that's very famous and that's definitely going to read (laughs) um but yeah coming back to the language thing um I didn't realize until I was just sort of uh, refreshing what I knew about them and their family that um they grew up in a very anglicized household Mm. and uh I think that is what kind of sets Narayanan apart from a lot of Indian writers in English in that he is, to all intents and purposes, a native speaker. Uh, And he's a native speaker of a British colonialist background. Mm -hmm. And so that goes back to what you were saying, you know, like about how it it sounded so British, it sounded so familiar, because he really did belong to that genre more than anything. It's weird, isn't it? Because he's writing it about is. India and he's such an Indian writer. But the way that he, how do you, I, I don't even know how to express what it is, you know, like that quality of Britishness, because you're right, it, he does have it. I guess more than anything, I'm really dumbfounded by the fact that he is qualified as an Indian writer. But, you know, at the time that he was born and writing this, India was still under colonial rule. Right. So why wouldn't he be considered a you know, a British writer? It's like it's like Britain wants to cut wants to other like the Indian writers of just like, oh, he's writing about Indian people who are living in the Indian countryside. So he's an Indian writer. But if he was a white person living in India at the time, he would be claimed as a British writer. And to me, that is something that's like um, Rudyard Kipling was of just, sort right. of, you know, you know, of course, <laughs> totally different aims between those two writers. But Rudyard Kipling is considered a British writer who was living in India. And why Narayanan isn't considered the same way is it's very glaring to someone who is not British or Indian. 
I mean, how much time do we have? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just like, that's a whole other show. But we end up talking about that a lot on here just because, it, you know, so much of what defines how we interact with texts is just this colonial versus post-colonial rule sort of. Right. And, and that we are now discussing how screwed up it was to have that sort of delineation is a good thing, but we're still not over it. So I like to encourage people to read everything the with the post-colonial lens of like, mm-hmm. how were these people who are writing and the characters in the book actually treated because they were not of British descent and how like basically br- the British keep them at arm's length. It's unacceptable. And why this book isn't taught in American schools is actually beyond me because it's it's approachable. It is, like you said, it's it's wholesome in a sense that you don't get in a lot of British literature. And uh, it, it just is a little bit surprising to me that I'd never heard of this man until now. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, when I think back to my childhood and I think of all the literature that we read as, you know, good and improving literature, um, and especially because every so often we have these debates about what constitutes literature and who should read mm-hmm. it and when, um, it always strikes me that most of those conversations devolve around very particular British writers from the 19th century mm-hmm. who, who are often writing about village life in Yorkshire. You know? Exactly. And how is this any different? Well, it has less misery for one. For one? My God, I think we can finally go and say of just like, what is wrong with British people? Of just like, they have the, they all choose to live in these quaint little British towns where like, there's the vicar who runs things, knows everybody's secrets. And then there's like the local councilman who's probably cheating everybody and definitely cheating on his wife. And there's all these just like, and then of course they just heap more misery on top. And I'm like, why do you choose? this life if you hate it so much (laughs) that's actually true I mean like he so that's one of the things that I really like about Narayanan and I always have like even as a child even when he was homework which is Mm -hmm. that um he stood out in really strong contrast to the British writers that I was reading at the time in that uh they were both writing you know um they're sort of devoted to the idea of realism in their work. So if you look at somebody like Hardy, for instance, or Elliot, mm-hmm. you know, so they're talking about like, oh, you know, like this is what the human condition is like. And uh, Narayanan managed to do that with charm and wit instead of misery. <laughs> and I really appreciated that, um, you know. Especially coming from the the colonized perspective where it's like, you know, people are not having a good time. They are being (laughs) oppressed by a government. And it's just like, but if you make it small enough, you can find joy and hope, which is a really valuable message of just like, sometimes you don't want to look at the bigger picture. And I think we can all kind of connect with that right now of just like, sometimes you don't want to look at what the large scale multinational governments are doing. Mm. Sometimes you do just want to look for little bits of hope and joy and comfort in your very small community. And it, it's really nice to know that a man who's coming from the Brahmin class, like, does have a not 
condescending perspective on small town life. He doesn't call these people simple. He doesn't call them, you know, uncultured. He doesn't call them names or, you know, like look down on them. He really does have just like a genuine respect for people who live in this small town little community that he's creating. Right. But, you know, just listening to you talk, Emily, excuse me, it just brings home to me how difficult it is to convince people that literature means something unless it includes giant dollops of misery and violence Mm -hmm. and, you know, like, unless it is completely committed to the darker side of human nature. Um, most people have to be convinced into thinking that something is good. Right, um, right. It's so sad because uh, Raju, he has, his story arc is really lovely. Can you just give us like a quick like summary basically of like the points of his life? Sure. Um, so Raju is, uh, they call him Railway Raju, which... Uh, made me laugh because that's a very South Indian way of referring to somebody, you know, where you conflate a person's name with their mm-hmm. <laughs> their profession. And in this particular case, you know, he's a tour guide and he um, he picks up people from the train station and then he you know takes them around whatever they want to do. And uh, through his work, he comes across this archaeologist called Marco. And Marco has a young wife called Rosie, who is the first woman that Raju has really interacted with and fallen for. Mm-hmm. And Marco is um, a workaholic and he's obsessed with his work, which Raju really can't understand because he's got Rosie at home. <laughs> Why wouldn't he yeah. spend all his time with her? Um, but alas, you know, Marco is um, an educated man and he has his mm-hmm. own demons. And um, Raju ends up falling for Rosie and spending a lot of time with her. And Rosie is an artist. She is a dancer. She wants to dance, but Marco is opposed to it. And things conspire Mm -hmm. in a way that um, Raju and Rosie end up together after Marco finds out about their affair and then uh, basically abandons her at the railway station. You know, Marco, like, no, I don't have much (laughs) respect or sympathy for Marco. No, this is the cruelest point in the book of just how Marco treats his wife. Um, But when we first meet Raju, he's actually um, uh, at this temple in the middle of nowhere where he has, uh, where he has taken refuge and he just doesn't know where to go or what to do when by chance, and this goes back to what Emily said about Raju just being in the right place at the right time, um, he gets mistaken for a holy man just because he has the trick of saying uh, things that sound profound. Um, very it's very charming and I don't mean that in a condescending way at all I mean it of just like we all know this person who just sort of shows up and says the right thing and is suddenly treated with respect and you're just like why 
So um, Raju is a bit surprised by his reception in this remote village, but then he decides to roll with the punches because, hey, you know what? Life is actually kind of good for a godman in India. They bring him food and he just is like, this is the life. Why would I ever stop this? So um, things progress in that way. And then Raju just becomes more and more entrenched in this village. And life is really good. And then he, you know, through a series of tiny moments and other people mistaking his intent and then misreporting what he had said um, and his own fears. So throughout this novel, there is this theme about how it is Raju's own insecurities and fears that are his greatest enemy because his his life is actually kind of perfect as long as he allows things to happen to him. But the moment he starts taking active decisions about yes. things, everything just things goes sideways. You're off course. Yes. <laughs> so uh, Raju actually tries to stop a fight and... Um, Somehow this gets translated and mistranslated to the village as him undergoing this fast um, to stave off the drought in the region. And now all of a sudden, Raju does, is stuck in this temple playing Godman, and they refuse to feed him because... <laughs> if he doesn't eat, then the rains will come. <laughs> And what happens is that uh, Raju eventually breaks down and um, confesses his past to one of the people from the village in the hopes. I'm not even sure what he was hoping for. Like, was he hoping that he'd get fed, that he'd be allowed to escape? question. If the guy would just be like, sorry, I misconstrued the situation. Here's something to eat. Like, like you can leave now because we, we won't try to stop you. I didn't realize the mistake we had made. But the man just listens to his whole backstory and says, I won't tell a soul and like walks away. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so what happened was like Raju met up with Marco and Rosie in this past life. And then, um, Rosie and Marco's great, um, great clash of personalities was basically over her desire to dance, which Marco thought was childish and, um, stupid and mm -hmm. low class and vulgar. And, um, and, um, Raju, because he just wants Rosie in his life and will do anything to keep her, mm -hmm. um, pretends to be a great fan of the arts and uh, <laughs> 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 to support her. And he actually, you know, by sheer pretension, he does, he does end up being a supportive presence in her life. And um, because he has the street smarts to arrange things for her, he becomes her manager. And then eventually, you know, it's his fear that Rosie will leave him and return to Marco because Rosie does have, um, she does, she is an Indian woman of a certain time and a certain class. And she does crave respectability almost as much as she wants to be, you know, an artist. Um, and Raju ends up faking her signature on a significant piece of, um, of legalese 
and mm -hmm. uh, Marco uses that to send him to jail. So mm -hmm. back when we saw him in the beginning at the temple, he had just been released from jail and he didn't want to go back home in disgrace. So he was basically hiding out in the temple. <laughs> It's such a brilliant use of the location and just the the understanding of the architecture of the countryside of knowing <laughs> that there are these buildings that exist that people can easily hide out in and use as like transformational spaces, but not in the way that's meant, you know, like you're supposed to feel a spiritual trend, you know, uh, transformation of going there and finding solace and things like that but he just uses it as a way to create a new identity <laughs> I also thought it was like really funny in the way that the book um so when he becomes a um so he he's first a god man and then because he undertakes the fast he's basically a saint at that point because he's starving mm -hmm. himself to death and it's amazing you know the way Narayanan um juxtaposes the Indian reaction to this versus the American reaction to this mm -hmm. because um, there's this American documentary filmmaker who is attracted uh, to the scene of the fast because he's heard about it and he's like, oh my God, like this, this man. Is a great, great documentary. <laughs> like I could sell this story. <laughs> and he the all these amazing uh passages about the American dude just taking photos of him and asking him all kinds of questions in the search mm -hmm. for profound answers and large favorite part. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Oh no, my favorite part is just the description of the generators for his lights <laughs> of just he comes in and he's setting up this whole film sequence and just he has to turn on an electric generator in order to power lights and it drowns out everything and fills the temple with diesel smoke and you're just like, yep, nope, that's America. Good on you. You caught it. <laughs> Um, so uh, Narayanan himself, I feel like he based it on his interactions uh, with Americans in the United States because I believe, um, was it Greta Garbo? I feel it was Greta Garbo who who chased him around LA once asking him oh for like, spiritual advice. And that he was, sounds about right. And he was just like, I, I don't have any. I'm sorry. See, that's not my job. <laughs> Just because I'm Indian doesn't mean that's what I do. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so on the one hand, you have the American documentary filmmaker who is both, you know, trying to capitalize on this, um, on the spectacle, but also has what sound like very genuine, very earnest questions <laughs> to which Daju has no answers. And then on the other hand, you have all the Indians who've just turned it into this you know, this fair, basically. <laughs> like, people are, like, selling things. There's, like, food being sold. Everyone's having... a man who's starving himself to exactly. death. <laughs> and everyone's having a great time while poor Raju is just basically dying inside the temple. Um, oh, it's, it's it's funny. It's, that's very bleak. It's <laughs> still very... It's still very emo something you can emotionally connect with of just this man is starving himself to death and everybody is having a fantastic time around him because of the spectacle of it all. 
And what I like about it is that it's not a heavy-handed description at all. Like, you know, um, he's not taking a hammer to right. um, the subtext and he's not saying, hey, did you see this? <laughs> you know? Because yeah, he doesn't pass judgment on anybody in the book. Right. Except for maybe Marco. Well, and the uncle who's an ass. Right. So the two upper class men of of learning and status, he takes a couple of really good swipes at. Right. Which is uh, I have. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I have to admit, I read Marco as white, not just because of the name, but also because of the behaviors. Oh no, Marco is I think probably Anglo Indian. Um, oh or, okay. Or just like he could have, he could be just plain. Um, Indian Christian, but um, probably Anglo-Indian, I feel. Okay, that that makes sense. Be- simply because of the way he commodifies the cave drawings that he spends so much time looking at, of just, it's, it's going to be down to him to change the history of what we understand about these people and things like mm. that. And to me, I was just like, oh, that is definitely a European perspective of like, this man thinks that cave paintings that everyone knows about he discovered and he's going to use to make his name in history and i'm like oh that's a white guy if i ever <laughs> if i ever heard of it that is a white man in india <laughs> well you're not wrong but also um one of the stated aims of british colonialism and this isn't particular just to india i feel like this is just the english in ireland the english in scotland and english everywhere was to uh, turn Indians into little brown Englishmen. And you will still find a lot of, like even today, like, you know, people born after independence, you will still find that very English, Oxbridge-educated set of upper-class people who have a very colonialist mindset when they Mm -hmm. deal with India, even though they are Indians themselves. That's very strange to hear, but I fully understand it mm-hmm. um, of just we we obviously have it too, being English colonies previously, and then having all of our own bag of weirdness that Americans <laughs> bring along with everything of just, um, you know, I'm from New England. I'm from, you know, where the colonists first started, right. and they're still very thoroughly that culture there, less so out here in Los Angeles. Um it's just different. But uh, the American filmmaker, oh, I know those people. I know those people <laughs> through and through now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, one of the great joys of reading Narayana, even when he was homework, is just the feeling of recognition. And I feel like um, to the people who really love his work, it is that recognition and that sense of nostalgia because the kind of Malgudi that he's writing about you know these mm-hmm. tiny villages in the middle of nowhere just cut off from the world but yet engaging with the periphery of it um, that's a world that doesn't exist anymore that's an India that doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. and so um, weirdly enough I feel like a lot of the people that love it so much are people who never lived it but uh, that makes sense you know so yeah um yeah yeah no we have that here too of just a lot of i mean i think that's pretty much everywhere that europe has colonized of just sort of that 
that longing for yesteryear, even mm-hmm. though you have absolutely no how hard of an existence it was. Mm-hmm. Like everybody I know just wants to own a farm. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> you have any idea, even with modern like mechanicalization of everything, do you have any idea how hard it is to own a farm? You live in a one-bedroom apartment. You don't want to own a farm. What is the matter with you? But that's just that longing for a simpler time that just never existed and will not exist again. Oh, it's just, it's it's very alarming and so true to life that just. Oh, I thought it was interesting that even when Raju becomes incredibly wealthy off of uh, Rosie's back, um, he doesn't leave the small town. You would think that he would want to go to a larger city and, you know, be in a larger hub of people. But he stays in this tiny little made up town, which um, was actually very surprising to me. I didn't think about it, but I feel like that makes sense to me because a he gets to be the big man on campus uh, mm-hmm. which is something that I think really appeals to Raju but right. also that is who I think of or that attitude is very familiar to me from you know my uncles from like because I'm South Indian um, I should mm-hmm. I should put I should put that out there. Um, <laughs> so in India, you know, if you're from the south or whether you're from the north or if you're from the east, like it's very different cultures. Uh, so gotcha. this is a very South Indian culture that is being described in this book. Um, and to me, like it makes perfect sense that the person who would want to live in this tiny little village. I mean, my dad hasn't <laughs> lived in this <laughs> village, like where his family comes from. In well, my dad's like. 83 so he hasn't lived there for like about 70 odd years I think but he'll still talk about it you know (laughs) (laughs) and if my mother had just agreed I think he would have retired um to that place uh, in the middle of nowhere you know um Uh, that is a that is a slightly different mindset, I think, to a lot of what my listeners would be familiar with here in America. Mm-hmm. Of just like there's a there's two different kinds of Americans where it's just like they want to stay in their hometown and they don't and they'd rather be the big fish in their small town. And then there's people who desperately want to move to the big city even if they get lost. And I I don't see that as much reflected. So I was really I'm one of those obviously like I'm moved from a small town to Los Angeles like there's very few bigger cities of you know so I connect more with people who are like I've got to get out of here. <laughs> and so the idea that Raju wouldn't do that was a little bit um uh, it was it was part of the charm of it of just that like he wanted to stay in this hometown and like his so his mom could find him basically Aww. of just like and it was very sweet um but I totally understand why in the end you know Rosie left him and that just like everything just went wrong because you can only do so much crime in a place where everyone knows who you are. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Raj is so real. shocked. Raj is because sorry. Go oh, ahead. sorry. Oh, oh no no no! Please, you go. Oh, I was just gonna say that Raju's a big city shyster in a tiny little village. 
he's so surprised that the, the police constable, essentially the big police gentleman that he like drinks with illegally and plays poker with when he arrests him, that doesn't mean anything. He's just another <laughs> prisoner and he gets so shocked and he's just like, his feelings are hurt that not that he got arrested, but that like the policeman isn't nice to him. And I was just like, yeah, that's how the law works. That's a good thing. But also the way that he gets uh, sentenced, like the way that he's convicted is because uh-huh. everybody knows him. And so when he did all his crimes, everybody saw him do it in a super <laughs> obvious way. <laughs> I cannot stress enough to people, like, please find this book. Like, it's on Amazon Kindle. That's how I got it. Like, it just, it's so lovely in its universality of, like, everybody knows this person. Like, I have to tell a story of, like, my husband grew up in San Antonio, Texas, which is, like, a large enough city, but there's neighborhoods in it where everybody knows everybody. And there was this guy who, like, needed money. So he robbed a local fast food chain, but it was at the one at the end of his housing development. So he was like running down the street after having robbed this fast food store. And everybody was like, where are you going, Steve? Like, And he's just, and then the cops come in and they're like, did you see anybody? And they were like, yeah, we saw Steve running like a bat out of hell. And that's what Raju reminds me of, of just like the clumsiest, worst criminal in the world (laughs) and the way that he describes these events is also really funny because he has this wide-eyed sense of disbelief about it (laughs) that certainly this wasn't what was coming to him and it was just like yes it was from the very beginning my friend yes it was um yeah and the thing is like he knows that he's up to no good when he's doing it like every single time that he's doing something Mm -hmm. wrong it's not even that he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong he does know it he just just that wrong is easier exactly it's easier and surely nobody is going to find out and punish him for it um because he's just raju and why would you exactly why would you his mom loves him Exactly, exactly. My favorite bit at the end is when he's being interviewed and someone asks him if he's always been a yogi, if he's always been a spiritual guide. (laughs) And he just kind of goes, more or less. (laughs) And I'm like, that is the greatest way to describe his entire life. (laughs) I had to actually put the book down at that point and laugh. (laughs) Because, oh my God. (laughs) He was like cheating tourists out of money because when he was first became a tour guide, he would just like lie to people about what they were looking at, but it made them happy. So where was the wrong in this? (laughs) I was like, have you always been a, a, you know, a spiritual advisor? And he's like, more or less. (laughs) It's so wonderful. (laughs) 
So I have to tell you that, you know, like when this, this is a slight tangent, but um, you can cut it out if you want. No, no, um, no, go for it. So when this book was made into a movie, um, it was adapted by this big star from the 1950s and the 1970s called Devanand. Um, although he made movies way into the, like the 90s or early 2000s, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a big oh star. Goodness. Yeah, <laughs> he was a big, wait, I'll tell you. <laughs> But he was a big star starting the 1950s. And um, Devanand made a version of The Guide and he was very proud of it. And he he really thought that it was going to be like a huge um, deal for him. And he was right. It was a huge success in India. But Akinarayanan basically, I don't know if he saw it or if he saw the script, but he never spoke about it ever again. Like he just pretended it never existed like you would never even refer to it and I always wondered like um is it because it was like a big Hindi extravaganza because it had like you know uh Rosie's dance performances for example in that movie Mm -hmm. are gorgeous it's this beautiful woman called Wahida Rahman who was one of the finest actresses in India and uh you really had like you know huge song and dance numbers and stuff in it so I felt like maybe he was offended by that and then I read this book and I realized that the movie is kind of if this book had been adapted by Raju himself (laughs) that's the vibe of the movie because Devanand so here's who Devanand was right like this is my favorite story about Devanand which is that in the year like and in 2006, 2008, there was this big Bollywood movie that came out called Om Shanti Om. And mm-hmm. in it, they had the song in which they thought it would be a cool concept to just invite uh, Hindi film stars from like throughout the ages, from like the 1950s, uh-huh. 60s, 70s, 80s. And they invited about 30 different people and they had like this big song and it was really fun and um you know, it's just a the film fraternity coming together kind of a thing and having a party. And they invited Devanand to come and uh, put in like a special appearance in this song, like, you know, many of his peers. And Devanand said, um, and he referred to himself in the third person because of course he did, but he said to them, <laughs> uh, Devanand has never starred in a film where he was not the lead and then just stared at them. so you could just imagine like what he did to the film because um you know the ending where you know Raju is basically uh you know out of his mind uh it's played out very differently in the film versus the book and once I read the book I really understood why Arkin Arainan would be so upset because this book is so precise in the way that it explores these themes and it shows these people and the film really isn't. (laughs) Yeah, no, the way you describe of uh, the actor's response, uh, it reminded me so much of the scenes where, you know, Rosie is performing and she's a phenomenal dancer and Raju fully believes it's because of him that she's so popular, where he's like, I give the stage manager the cue to raise the curtains. And it's like, no, you don't. They have a time where they're supposed to start. Like, you know, and he sees, he sees his large.
largesse as the reason why Rosie is so popular. And it's like, no, she just is a really good dancer and everybody really likes her. And she's doing an art form that people had forgotten about and she's reviving it. And she's tapping into something for them. And she's really beautiful. And uh, there's all these things. And he's like, nope, it's me. Like, uh, I've never not been the star. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's oh perfect. Absolutely perfect. So that's another thing that I really like about Narayanan in that he 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 builds a very complex character in Rosie and he shows like you know how she's so vulnerable and mm-hmm. she's also vulnerable to a certain type of man you know with like yes. both Marco and Raju and um, I'm glad that the book says that you know that she's happy and she's living a successful life <laughs> right me too thank goodness <laughs> That's how you can tell it's not British literature. (laughs) The woman's happy at the end. Good for her. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my goodness. I can't tell you enough how much I've enjoyed talking about this book with you. And it's really been a lovely, lovely conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for inviting me. Like I wouldn't have read this book if it wasn't for you. And I can't thank you enough for it. And this time it wasn't just what I refer to as 900 pages of Victorian sadness. <laughs> it was an actually charming, really lovely story. And so I'm glad I didn't have you read something that made you want to die at the end. Well, me too. <laughs> so Amrita, how can everybody keep in contact with you and your work? Because you have a lot of little projects going on. I'm sorry, a lot of projects going on. Oh, there are little projects and there are many of them. Um, you... No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be condescending. <laughs> no, you weren't. It's fine. Um, you can find me on Twitter at AmritaIQ. That's A-M-R-I-T-A-I-Q. Um, or you can find me on YouTube at Amrita by the Book, which is my booktube channel. Um, and also on Instagram is the same thing, Amrita by the Book. Wonderful. Oh, also, if you are sick and tired of film bros, um, then... And you know I am. <laughs> um, it's a new dawn, and I co-host a Bollywood um, film podcast called Khandan. That's K-H-A-N-D-A-A-N, and it's available on all platforms. That's amazing. I'm sure a lot of my listeners are going to go out and listen to that because let me tell you, uh, literature geek and Bollywood geek, huge overlap. (laughs) (laughs) And that's fantastic. (laughs) Always happy to have more people come in. And please, please, please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram under the handle fuckboysoflit, that's B-O-I-S, and at fuckboysoflit.com. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash fuckboysoflit, where you'll get fun extras like video episodes, extra content, and anything else the class asks me to share. If you can't spare a few bucks to be a patron, the next best way to spread the news about FBOL is to rate and review the show wherever you listen, especially if it's good old Apple Podcasts. So you can find me lurking on the internet. And until next time, I'm Emily Edwards, and have a good one. Well, it has less misery for one.